Good afternoon, everybody. We're going to get started here. Thank you all so much for coming. I am uh, Peter Russo. I'm the Director of Congressional Affairs at the Cato Institute, and I want to welcome you to our briefing today called Air Traffic Control, Bipartisan Reform in 2016. Um, I want to leave a lot of time to get a good dialogue going at the end of this, so I'm just going to get started. And to set the table for today's event is Chris Edwards, the Director of Tax Policy Studies at Cato and editor of downsizinggovernment.org. Edwards is a top expert on tax and budget issues who has testified in Congress on fiscal issues many times, and his articles have appeared in the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, and other major newspapers. He is also the author of Downsizing the Federal Government and co-author of Global Tax Revolution. So, Chris? Thanks a lot, Peter, and welcome to uh, the forum today. Uh, the title is Air Traffic Control, Bipartisan Reform in 2016. Now, the, the title of the forum is a little bit optimistic, uh, but there is certainly a growing number of policymakers and experts uh, who favor major restructuring of our air traffic control system. Uh, reauthorization of the FAA uh, has to be done by the end of March, and yesterday, as many of you uh, may know, House Transportation Chairman uh, Bill Schuster introduced a major uh, air traffic control reform bill. So that will certainly be uh, the focus of discussion in coming uh, weeks. Uh, there is opposition to restructuring, uh, but it does seem to me if President Obama wants a uh, major um, pro-growth achievement in his last year, I think he should get behind air traffic control reform. Uh, I'm delighted today to be joined by two really top-notch experts on air traffic control, uh, Dorothy uh, Robin uh, over here and Steve uh, Van Beek. Uh, but before I introduce them, I'm going to give you sort of a few big-picture details uh, on, uh, on the air traffic control uh, situation. And then Dorothy and Steve, I, I'm sure, will fill in a lot of the uh, uh, details. So the Federal Aviation Administration, FAA, uh, runs the nation's air traffic control system. Uh, FAA has got a $17 billion budget and 47,000 employees. It's a pretty big uh, business. Now, an obvious thing about air traffic control is that it's a high-technology uh, industry uh, that serves the commercial needs of airlines and general aviation. So when you think about high-tech industries, you think about uh, companies that are very flexible uh, and innovative uh, and, uh, and that sort of thing. And uh, those are not sort of words you think about when you think about federal bureaucracies. And indeed, the FAA has long been criticized by the GAO and other experts uh, for cost overruns and other sorts of uh, general mismanagement. Uh, now, I'm sure the employees at the FAA are you know, talented and hardworking, and, and they certainly are. The problem is with the institutional structure that those folks operate, and that's what needs to be reformed. Uh, as Dorothy and Steve uh, will discuss, our air traffic control system faces huge challenges in coming years uh, in upgrading technology and uh, responding to rising aviation demands. Uh, Bill Schuster, I noticed uh, yesterday, said uh, he doesn't think the current system is going to be able to handle the rise in demand uh, and all the congestion uh, we will see in the air. Uh, the good news is, is that reforms in other countries showed us that there is another way to run air traffic control rather than through an old-fashioned government bureaucracy. Uh, Britain privatized its air traffic control system. In 2000, uh, the new system is called NATS. It's a uh, for-profit, publicly traded corporation. Uh, Canada privatized its system in 1996 as a non-profit corporation uh, called NAV Canada. Uh, both reforms, uh, interestingly, uh, were by left-of-center governments. 
Uh, so this shouldn't be an ideological or partisan sort of an issue. Uh, it should be about what works, and I think uh, experience internationally has shown that privatizing air traffic control can certainly work very well. I mean, the Canadian system has won many international uh, awards, and it has got lauded for its efficiency and innovation. The Wall Street Journal recently uh, interviewed the head of NAV Canada, uh, John Crichton. Uh, he noted that NAV Canada has substantially uh, fewer employees than before uh, privatization, but deals with substantially heavier traffic. The system has become substantially more efficient uh, north of the border. Crichton said, and I think this is interesting, he said, quote, uh, this business of ours has evolved long past the time when government should be in it. Governments are not suited to run dynamic, high-tech, 24-hour businesses, unquote. So I think uh, uh, Mr. Critchen's uh, logic is uh, uh, bang on, and uh, it makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, but we will see what Dorothy and Steve uh, have to say. So I will uh, introduce them, and then uh, Dorothy uh, can, uh, can go first. Uh, Dorothy Robbins served in both the Clinton and Obama administrations. Uh, for Clinton, she was a special assistant to the President for Economic Policy and a senior staff member on the National Economic Council. Uh, she was the White House point person on aviation uh, during the Clinton years and dealt with these same sorts of issues back then when uh, President Clinton proposed restructuring air traffic control. So this uh, issue has been germinating uh, a long time. In the Obama administration, she was commissioner of the Public Building Service in the GSA. Uh, in that job, I read in the uh, newspaper, uh, she uh, helped lease out the old post office pavilion to the company that owned by uh, that abrasive fellow Donald Trump. So I'm sure she has lots of uh, interesting war stories about that. Uh, Dorothy's an expert on regulation. Uh, she wrote a book uh, actually on deregulating the trucking industry, uh, which was one of the uh, successful reforms of President Jimmy Carter. Uh, more recently, uh, she's written about air traffic control reform for uh, the Brookings. Uh, institution. Uh, she's got a PhD and master's from, uh, from UC Berkeley. And we've handed out a number of Dorothy's uh, articles, and I would highly recommend her 2008 uh, Brookings study on air traffic control reform. It's, uh, it's really top-notch. Uh, Stephen Van Beek is vice president of aviation consulting for ICF International. Uh, Steve has more than 25 years of experience uh, in air traffic control and aviation issues. Uh, he served on the FAA Management Advisory Council, uh, which a few years ago recommended the separation of air traffic control operations uh, from the FAA, which is the issue uh, in front of us today. Uh, Steve also uh, previously was the executive director at Leigh Fisher, Inc. He was the CEO of the Eno Transportation Foundation. Uh, he was an executive VP at Airports Council International, uh, and he uh, was a director in the Department of uh, Transportation. So Steve is really an awesome array of transportation experience. Uh, he's got uh, a doctoral degree from UVA. So I'm delighted to, uh, to have them both here, and we're going to lead off with uh, Dorothy. Thank you, Chris, and thank you for giving Jimmy Carter credit for airline uh, and trucking deregulation. You know, there's a lot of people who forget that. They, they assume it was a, uh, a Reagan administration thing. It was not. It was a Carter administration uh, effort, although there was certainly a, a lot of competition among Republicans and Democrats to take the lead on it, uh, and it, it reflected decades of uh, work by, uh, by economists and uh, policy wonks uh, before the stars were aligned. Uh, and uh, 
I think the same is true of this of this issue, air traffic control reform. It has been it has been something that has been studied for uh, for decades. There have been a lot of a lot of commissions. Uh, I could not agree with Chris Moore. This should not be an ideological issue. It should not be a partisan issue. Steve and I uh, both served in the Clinton administration. Uh, John Hennigan uh, is in the audience, was at the Department of Transportation and actually more deeply involved in some of what I'm going to talk about than, than, uh, than I was. Um, but I'm going to give you a little bit of the history. How did the Clinton administration come to uh, embrace uh, this um, and what, what happened? And sort of take you up to the um, to, uh, to 2000 and lay out lay out how we saw the problem, and then Steve is going to uh, uh, talk about the more recent uh, events. Um, so the, I spent eight years, all eight years, uh, in the uh, Clinton White House on the economic team. I had a fairly broad portfolio. Um, it did include aviation for uh, for part of the time, and <clears throat> early on, um, a lot of you were not were are too young to remember this. But when uh, President Clinton took office, the uh, the airline industry was in very bad shape uh, economically. The country was coming out of a uh, it was in a jobless recovery, and the airline industry in particular was in bad shape. And the first um, trip that uh, President Clinton took out out of Washington D.C. in February or March of '93. Um, he made a stop in, uh, in Washington at a Boeing facility, met with all of the airline CEOs and aerospace CEOs uh, to talk about what could they do to get the airline industry back on its feet because President Clinton's view was that we, we can't get the, the economy back on its feet without getting the airline industry healthy again. Uh, he created a, uh, he announced the creation of a commission uh, that day uh, uh, it was uh, chaired by uh, Jerry Belisles, former governor, Democratic governor of uh, Virginia. Uh, and it was a classic blue ribbon commission on the future or the health of the airline industry. And it met very quickly. It was a six, six month turnaround thing. This is the report that they, uh, they issued in August of 93. Yeah, so that, that came out really quickly. One recommendation, it was one of, of many, but was to, uh, to spin off the air traffic portion of the FAA, the portion of the FAA that, uh, uh, the non-regulatory portion as a separate entity. <clears throat> At the time, there were four countries uh, that had done that, the UK, uh, Germany, Australia, and New Zealand, and, uh, and as I say, it had been debated for a long time. There had been a lot of proposals and discussion about doing it. They recommended doing it. Vice President Gore picked it up, made it part of uh, reinventing uh, government, and put, put, put in process a year-long study led by the Secretary of Transportation, Federico uh, Pena, which John Hennigan was involved in, to flesh this out and come up with a, uh, a concrete uh, proposal. The concrete proposal, <coughs> which we proposed in, uh, legislatively in 1995, was something called USATS, U.S. Air Traffic Services, Inc., USATS. And USATS was, the model for USATS was Air New Zealand. Roughly, I mean, it was it was um, it was roughly based on Air New Zealand. It was an independent government corporation, with a with a board, uh, with some continued uh, with uh, arm's length regulation by the 
uh, FAA and the ability to go to the capital markets uh, with, with permission from the Secretary of the Treasury uh, to go to the capital markets and borrow up to $15 billion. And the idea was that it would be able to operate like a, like a business. Um, uh, now, why did, we, why did we think that was a good idea? Why did this, this study uh, conclude that it was a good idea? There are a couple, couple reasons. <clears throat> First of all, and this is, this is not well understood, so I'm really going to stress it because I think it's really, really critical. Air traffic control, the controllers, the towers, the non-regulatory part of the FAA is not inherently governmental. We looked at that. Other people had looked at it. We looked at it. We said, yep, this is not an inherently governmental activity. What does that mean? It is, it's very safety critical like every part of the aviation industry. Um, but it's, it, it's, and it's a very sophisticated and it's very high tech, but it is a, it is basically a production line. It is a, an op, it's operational in nature. It is a high tech production line. Uh, it does not require policy judgments. It does not require judgments about trade-offs like the regulatory side, like, like the regulatory side of the FAA or any other regulatory agency. That's what makes something inherently governmental when it requires those sort of trade-offs that you cannot describe in a contract or a, 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 a performance contract. Air traffic control it, it is, in, it is not inherently uh, governmental. The, other countries were starting to figure that out. There's, there's reasons why I think historically people had thought that it was, but countries were beginning to figure it out. We concluded the same. <clears throat> Second, precisely because air traffic control is not inherently governmental, because it is, it has the, uh, the essential qualities of a business, it was uh, not functioning uh, as well as it could being in out of the FAA and you know my my sort of bumper sticker summary of this is that uh, that the air traffic control system is a 24/7 high-tech service business trapped in a command and control regulatory agency that is uh, uh, burdened by uh, government procurement rules by a uh, financing system that doesn't allow for ca capital budgeting, and micromanaged by you guys, by, by Congress. Um, that, is a, that is a fundamental cultural mismatch between the business-like nature of this high-tech activity and the, the, the place it is being done. That, that is, in essence, why <clears throat> we in the Clinton administration proposed this. Third. Um, um, there's a conflict of interest. When you have the FAA uh, as both the regulator and the operator, that is a, that is a conflict of interest. Now, that was not our, the leading reason that we did this, but it was a, it was a consideration. Uh, and since then, ICAO, the International Civil Aviation Organization, has, 
has directed countries to separate the regulator from the for, from the operator. And if you look at it, um, well, since, since that time, most countries have done this. They have spun off air traffic control. David Batchelor is here from the European Union, and he will tell you that in a lot of cases, they have done that to deal with that conflict of, of interest. Uh, so, um, so those were the, the main reasons that, uh, that we, we, did, uh, we did this. Um, the, um, um, the NAV Canada did not exist yet. I think uh, we'll talk more about that. I think it is, it is uh, uh, I am a big believer in the NAV Canada model, which is a user cooperative model. Let me, let me just say one, one thing. Air traffic control is a, it is a, remains a monopoly. For the time being, the technology is such that it is, it is a business, but it remains a natural monopoly. I don't think that is necessarily going to be the case forever, but it is for now. That's what makes this so hard. That's why we're all here. <laughs> if, it were, if, it, if you could have competition, it would be like uh, like other things that you can privatize and rely on the market. It isn't. It remains a natural monopoly. So you have to deal with that. And there are different models. The model we chose in 1995 was a government corporation. Since then, the Canadians, I think, have broken the code and come up with a better model, the user co-op, where the stakeholders manage the organization and it creates better incentives in terms of keeping costs low and investing at the, uh, at the optimal level. So um, we proposed USATs in 1995. USATs was dead on arrival when it got to uh, Capitol Hill. I think that uh, there were some members who felt that it went, uh, that it didn't go far enough, and others that felt that it went too far. I asked a colleague uh, recently who, who uh, worked on it what, whether he thought that was the inevitable outcome, and he said, yeah, you know, we, we, we thought that probably is what was going to happen, but we really thought it was the right thing to do. We really thought it was the right thing to do, and I think that at the end of the day, uh, it is uh, is the reason that we we push for it. I um, uh, we <clears throat> several years later, uh, realizing that we weren't going to be able to spin off air traffic control entirely, we created and it was one of the last things President Clinton did was to issue an executive order creating the air traffic organization, creating a performance based organization within the FAA. So telling the FAA separate within the FAA, separate entirely the regulatory part from the operational part, put the operational part in a performance-based organization. It's called the Air Traffic Organization. Uh, and that was stood up in 2004 with uh, a senior airline executive, Russ Chu, in charge of it. Uh, and I think it's, it has definitely helped, but it's not... Uh, it's not enough. Enough. So let me. Uh, I think I've talked long enough. Let me leave it there and have Steve uh, pick it up from there. Thank you, Dorothy. Good afternoon, everybody. <clears throat> I am Steve Ambeek. Uh, since I uh, accepted Chris's uh, kind invitation to come speak. Uh, I've been serving also as head of economics for Airports Council International, which is the worldwide airport organization in Montreal. Uh, and so I've actually been um, doing some more research on air traffic systems and other things outside of the U.S. as well. Um, my normal job is a consultant, which in Washington means anything. So basically what that, 
what I usually do is uh, I have clients like San Francisco International Airport, LAX, San Diego, Washington, uh, Minneapolis. Um, so just to put um, my interests on the table. Um, and because of that, most of what I do is thinking about capital infrastructure and aviation, but on the airport side. Uh, but if you look at it, and you actually look at uh, ICAO's policies, they're actually very similar for air navigation service providers and for airports, charging policies, uh, what the form of authority should be, and everything else. The one exception is the United States, uh, which still has a public system of airports, even the largest, most profitable airports, and also has a publicly operated air traffic control system. Um, just north of the border, you have much more commercial airports, and you again, as Dorothy said, have a commercial provider. And I do commend to you uh, Dorothy's writings. I think uh, her and Bob Poole are probably the two I know who have been uh, following this issue the longest. Um, while I have been, um, and certainly when I was at uh, Airports Council International North America, we had a run at reform by the Bush administration and um, FAA Administrator Blakey at the time. And one of the more interesting things about this debate is uh, back in the Bush administration, the National Air Traffic Controllers Union was opposed uh, to what they considered uh, privatization of air traffic control. And today, Paul Rinaldi, the president of NATCA, who was also a colleague of mine on the FAA Management Advisory Council, has been in favor of looking at commercialization. And since the bill was introduced yesterday, NATCA put out a statement of their support, which uh, for a lot of my Democratic friends um, is an interesting thing for them to see. Um, well, why did Paul Rinaldi and Steve Van Beek back in 2011 start on this idea of commercializing, I use that word deliberately, commercializing air traffic control, um, well, let me turn the clock back just a little bit. In 2011, 2012, 2013, we had a series of budgetary debacles in Washington. We had partial government shutdowns. We had sequestration. We had lapsed FAA authorizations. We had continuing resolutions, all of which, because the FAA operates the air traffic control system and also that it funds airports and doesn't let airports fund themselves for the most part, that means that the infrastructure in aviation and the operations in aviation, anytime there's dysfunction in Washington, it causes massive problems in the aviation industry. And there was one day in particular where the chairman of the FAA MAC that I sat on, Gina Marie Lindsay, who was the director at the time of Los Angeles International Airport, she was sitting in there the day they pulled the trigger on sequestration. And this FAA person walked in and handed her a sheet that showed that the operations for LAX would have to be pulled down one-third that week because they had to take two air traffic controllers out of the tower due to sequestration. So if you want at the end of the day to understand why Paul Rinaldi and NATCA might be in favor of reforming air traffic control, you might go to that day where they said that every air traffic controller in the country, one day per pay period, was being furloughed. And that would, recall, that would cause a reduction of capacity to the system. So you think about highways and transit, right? When we have a budget debacle, grants may not flow, but they don't operate those systems. So there's not a pull down of capacity. Highways aren't closed. But in aviation, because of that direct hardwired link, 
into the federal budget and appropriations process. That's exactly what happens when there's budgetary dysfunction. So even if Mr. Schuster had not been foresightful and introduced what I think is a very good framework for, remember, aviation reform, not just air traffic reform, we would have to find some other way to ensure that the operation and capital investments that the FAA makes, whether in air traffic, airports, or whatever else they do, certification, important functions like that, had a sustainable flow of funds that every time Washington gets into a political food fight would not be impacted, right? And so for those opposed to Mr. Schuster's bill, I think there is some obligation to say, if you don't want to privatize or commercialize air traffic control, what is your alternative in order to address that big problem? And it's not just a you know, uh, provision that's being advocated by a bunch of uh, free market ideologues, okay? It's being advocated by a lot of people who have worked, as I have, both in the Congress and in the administration on a Democratic side because we've now spent years of dealing with a ridiculous uh, public policy system for aviation. Now, the sad thing to me is that the Airport and Airway Trust Fund, which for 40 years basically made a lot of sense as a way of providing airport uh, and air, air navigation FAA revenue. You know, the whole idea was that in a budget where you don't have a capital budget, you have an annual appropriations process. It's very difficult for entities like an air traffic entity or airports to invest capital because they don't have a multi-year framework for that. And so just like with highways and transit, the idea was to say, let's take some ticket taxes, put them in a trust fund that would be inviolable, and over time, airports, air traffic, FAA would have the ability to invest capital and not have that interrupted. And at the time, remember, U.S. aviation traffic's growing 3 4 5% per year, um, maybe recessions here and there, but over a 10-year period, we, it was fairly reliable that there would be more and more revenue. Of course, that was until the, la the late 1990s, and during the first decade of the 21st century, the U.S. was the only region in the world where actually air traffic declined relative to GDP growth. And that started to have a very deleterious impact on the trust fund receipts. And then you also had this interesting development by the airlines that some of you are aware of, that they started imposing bag fees and ticket change reservation fees and all other things that weren't taxed for the trust fund anymore. And so what we began to see was a decline of the portion of airline revenue, fare revenue, that was taxed to support the system of airports and air traffic. And so that meant the per passenger return that we get from these dollars for the trust fund started to decline. And so really, the trust fund was a great device for many years, but just like with the highways, where Chairman Schuster has put, you know, a good reform proposal in place, got it passed into law, we're now considering reform to address uh, this problem. So the FAA MAC looked at all this between 2011 and 2013, and we sent a report to the Congress and to FAA Administrator Huerta, where we basically said, number one, we need a sustainable financial system for the services that the FAA provides so that they're uninterrupted for customers, for shippers, for employees of the system, everything else. Number two, we did recommend that you have a commercialized air traffic organization be separated from the FAA while retaining and strengthening the FAA's role in regulatory safety and oversight. 
and I agree with Dorothy that it is a bit of a conflict to have those in um, the same entity. Thirdly, we said that because we really haven't had aviation policy change for 25 years, and really if you look back at it, really since airline deregulation, what we really should do is have a process of <clears throat> codification where we look at uh, the laws that we have on the books and we redress those and modernize that for aviation, whether the issue is competition, safety, regulatory oversight, finance, um, whatever it might be. Even, you know, I could get it, do a whole day here on public-private partnerships and, you know, the ability to have those at airports rather than make those controlled by state and local governments. But uh, we digress. Um, and the fourth thing we recommended by the MAC was to put in a system of uh, cost-based charges to help fund the system. And the idea here was that we're in a very difficult fiscal environment. And if trust fund receipts continue to drop and you want to raise taxes or cut spending in the House in order to make up that gap that we would have in aviation, we all know how difficult that is in today's policy and political environment. And so what we said is, look, airlines are big boys, they can pay for themselves. Airports are big boys, they can pay for themselves. The people that can't pay for themselves are things like small community airports that need their access to the aviation system. Those are fine to have public money in. But for the rest of it, we should really recover the cost from the users of the system. And that's actually the way that most big airports fund capacity these days. They charge landing fees to the airlines that land there. The more airlines land there, the cheaper the fees are, et cetera. The other interesting thing about air traffic control to think about that is if airlines start paying a direct charge to the FAA, we no longer recover that from passenger taxes. Today it's sort of a bank shot from an economic point of view. If you have a user charge and the airlines write a check directly to the FAA for their services, they are cost-based and airlines then have every incentive they need to look at their return on investment for equipping new aircraft to fly in a modernized air traffic control system. However, if all of us are just paying ticket taxes and remitting those to the FAA and then the FAA is deciding where to put in those resources in the air traffic system, you've sort of de-linked the market equation there and the cost-based nature of that. And that's why Chairman Schuster, I think, has this board that says if you're a customer of the air traffic system and you're going to pay, you deserve to have a seat on the board or be represented on the board. So he has both them, he has some people to be appointed by, is it the secretary or the president? I didn't look at the bill language. But um, a mixture of a board, user pay, user says. Quite reasonable. He also sets up an advisory committee made up of, uh, uh, of airports, of labor, of other groups that would advise that board. So those principles, really, I think, are the genesis or the basis of the framework for air traffic reform. There are a couple other things in the bill just to mention, and we, we can get in those during the questions if people want. Um, there is a revised airport program. I think they missed a little bit of an opportunity to reduce the public contribution and provide more authority to airports. Um, there is some changes in certification that I think are extremely important. Um, you know, certification when we had um, uh, furloughs basically slowed the delivery of aircraft, uh, certification of parts and other things to the aviation industry, and that was a real problem. Uh, the bill was released yesterday, and I haven't really had an opportunity to go through that, but I'm, I'm hoping very much 
that uh, those will help address that problem. Um, and you know, at the end of the day, this is a continuous process. We have a bill now. We have a framework for House consideration. I understand they're going to mark up next week. We'll then have a House vote. And now it's up to the Senate to respond. If Democrats want to have an alternative to this that's based on, I think, uh, a corporation inside the federal government, and Dorothy, perhaps during questions, you can address that, that's great. But I go back to those core sets of principles from the beginning, right? We need to have a sustainable, reliable system of funding for FAA operations and capital investment that is delinked from the political dysfunction of Washington, recognizing aviation's important role in the economy and then updating our public policy and legal framework for aviation, which I said it's been three, four decades since we've done that, and just think of the massive changes that we've all seen in the aviation system since then. So with that, I've talked long enough. It'd be fun to have a good conversation here, so I'll turn it back to Chris. Great. Thanks a lot, Steve and Dorothy. Uh, I will make one comment, then I'm going to have uh, ask one question to Steve and Dorothy, and then we'll, then we'll open it up. My comment is, uh, you know, as Steve's talking about the, the, the stable funding is a really crucial aspect of this. And it does strike me that, you know, a, a possible opponents of this bill, they, you know, you've got to think long term. If you look at the latest CBO projections about federal deficits, they're large and they're growing and growing and growing. They're going to be over a trillion dollars by 2022 annual deficits. Uh, there's not going to be government tax money for air traffic control uh, uh, investments, uh, the type of major investments uh, we need. There, if there's been instability in the past, there's probably going to be more in the future, which leads to uh, a next question for uh, a question for Dorothy uh, or Steve. Uh, could you just uh, talk for a few minutes about next gen and, and this, this collection of technologies uh, that are, that are uh, the FEA is investing in and what they they could do what the, what the potential is for our air traffic control system and why that's so important? <clears throat> well, uh, I'm, not an, I'm not a next-gen expert, but um, it is, this has been a very, very long effort to fundamentally modernize the, <clears throat> the air traffic system and move to a satellite-based uh, system of separating aircraft as opposed to radar. Uh, radar doesn't rely on... Uh, on satellites. Um, <clears throat> NextGen, under a different name, under the name of modernization, began in 1981 as a $12 billion effort that would take, I forget how many years. Uh, now we are 35 years later uh, and close to $60 billion later, and <clears throat> we have not yet done a, a real uh, fundamental modernization of the system. Um, it's the, I will say the guy running next gen, Ed, Ed, Ed Bolton, uh, a retired uh, Air Force general who I worked with at uh, DOD, it, he, he is terrific. I mean, you, you the FAA is filled with good people. It is not the fault of the people. This is a structural issue, trying to uh, modernize a high-tech system under government rules, the biggest the biggest problem the federal government doesn't have a capital budget. You all you all know that you can, it's pay as you go. I ran the public building service at GSA. Let me tell you how hard it is to build a federal new federal building or do a major renovation when you have to do it on a pay as you go basis. That is so contrary to the way 
um, a high-tech enterprise operates. So the ability to go to the capital markets is part is part of this. So it's an ongoing effort. I think that next-gen, the next-gen effort is like the air traffic system. It is too top-down. It's technocentric. It is not respond. It doesn't respond. Uh, it isn't set up to respond to signals from the market about what direction to go. It was premised on the notion that uh, we needed to triple capacity. People thought that back in you know 2000 when we had a lot of delays. That's probably not reasonable now. But the, the, the whole idea that you're top-down dictating um, how much capacity you need as opposed to letting the market decide that I think is, uh, is flawed. Yeah, um, let me just say for those next-gen basically all it is is a movement from terrestrial-based air navigation to satellite-based and the whole idea is really premised on the fact of reducing the containment required both in uh, en route airspace and terminal airspace, meaning you can create more highways in the sky safely uh, and have reduced separation. And that is vital for airports like San Francisco that have runways that are only 700 feet apart. And if you've flown in San Francisco, anytime there's a, a marine layer sitting over the airport, you're likely to be severely delayed. And so airports have a real big um, interest in this. And one of the frustrating things on the MAC is the FAA during this three-year period was in a continual process of triage. And what that required them to do was to focus on today's operations and to kick the medium and long-term can down the road on a lot of key technologies, procedures that were instrumental for next-gen. Um, and that goes back to that original issue of sustainability and having enough resources so that the air traffic provider, be it FAA or a new entity, can do its job. One of the uh, fun facts from uh, Dorothy's paper for Brookings was that uh, she reports as, as late as the 1990s, the FAA was the largest purchaser of vacuum tubes in the United States, <laughs> believe it or not. Uh, remarkable. Uh, questions? Can I, can I yeah, just, yeah, sure, yeah. so just uh, a year ago, I had the uh, the privilege of testifying at a, at a hearing that uh, uh, um, House Transportation Infrastructure Chairman uh, Schuster and uh, Congressman DeFazio held on this issue, and uh, I, <clears throat> I got a hold of the vacuum tube that Vice President Gore used to use when he did, uh, when he did uh, uh, events or speeches on this topic. It was this big, big old vacuum tube, and he would tell the story about how not only was the FAA the biggest buyer of these big old vacuum tubes for their old, old radar, they had to procure them in Bulgaria, places like Bulgaria and the Czech Republic, because they were no longer manufactured in the United States. So, so I, uh, I unfortunately I didn't have an opportunity to get the vacuum tube today. But um, there are they're mostly gone, but there are still a few of the old FAA radars that uh, use vac vacuum tubes. Okay. 